You are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hi, everybody. David Guzik here. So glad you could join me here on a Thursday afternoon. I'm speaking to you from little office in the backyard of my home here in Santa Barbara, California. I'm looking out the window and I see a little rabbit eating some clover or something. And that's a little cute sight to see. But anyway, I'm glad you could join me here today. This is a question and answer live broadcast. So this is what I do. I start off with a lead question, something that's come in on email or as a comment on the YouTube channel or maybe social media, something like that. And after I deal with the lead question, then we just open it up for whatever questions or comments that people have, uh, as indicated in the chat window. And we do this for about maybe 40 minutes or so, and then we call it a day and wait till the next week. So I'm very pleased you could join me today. Our lead question for today is simply this, does God approve of polygamy? And this question comes from Monica. Uh, It's not exactly the question she asked, but again, you'll, you'll see what I mean from this. Does God approve of polygamy? And the question comes from Monica. Here we go. Uh, Can you make a QA and a video on polygamy in the Old Testament and why it was seemingly allowed by God? I know it was never God's will, but this was something that I asked and tried to answer, but the person didn't seem to accept it. I figured if you made a video, it may be more helpful to them. Thank you. Well, Monica, I got to say, the very specific question that you're asking is very difficult to answer. And the specific question you're asking is, why? Now, the fact that God allowed or permitted, or maybe I should put it this way, did not command against polygamy in the Old Testament is pretty clear. The taking of an additional wife or concubine was recognized as legal and was culturally accepted in the ancient world, including the world that Abraham and the patriarchs and those in the history of Israel lived in. And we might want to make a distinction here between a wife and a concubine. The Bible in the Old Testament did not specifically command against the taking of a wife or a concubine or additional wives. Uh, A wife was someone who had full legal status herself and her children received full legal status and inheritance rights. A concubine perhaps didn't have the same rights as a additional wife or uh, her children did not have the same inheritance rights. So that's sort of the difference between a wife or a concubine. And this was just part of the ancient world. And there are many men in the Bible who took more than one wife. Uh, For example, we have the father of Abraham, Nahor. He took more than one wife. Now, we have Jacob, who had two wives, Rachel and Leah, and two concubines, the handmaidens of each Rachel and Leah. Gideon had more than one wife. Elkanah, the uh, father of Samuel, had more than one wife. Uh, David had more than one wife, uh, six wives, I believe. And Solomon had more than one wife. Uh, Matter of fact, Solomon uh, is recorded in the book of 1 Kings as having 
700 wives and 300 concubines. Now, God never gave a specific command against this until the New Testament, with this exception. In the book of Deuteronomy, it does instruct the kings of Israel that they were not to multiply wives unto themselves. Now, there is some interpretive question as to what that means. What does it mean to multiply wives unto yourself? Uh, when David took six wives, is that multiplying wives? Is two wives, is that multiplying wives? Um, certainly, there's no doubt that Solomon's 700 wives and 300 concubines was a multiplication of wives. But you get what I'm saying? I mean, th there might be some dispute as to what exactly that means. But the idea that there was a command that the kings of Israel were not to show their authority, their power, their prestige in the same way that the rulers of the Gentile world showed their power and authority and prestige. And we have to say that this is one of the big reasons why polygamy was so common in the ancient world and today in the modern world, at least in some places. You see, in the ancient world, and again, also in the modern world, in some places today, having multiple wives is a way to proclaim your power and your wealth. And it was common for men to add wives as a measure of their prestige. I mean, look, let's face it. That's why Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. It was his way of saying, look at how fabulously wealthy I am that I can support all these wives. Look at the power that I have, that I have these uh, 700 women that belong to me in marriage. It was a way of expressing that. And again, this command in Deuteronomy said to the kings of Israel, you're not to communicate your power and authority the same way that the kings of the world do that. Now, this is what's very difficult about Monica's question. Monica is asking, why? Why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? And I got to say, the scriptures don't exactly tell us. Now, we, we can talk about the reasons why or the occasions upon which we know that polygamy was um, directly spoken against in the New Testament. Um, but let me get to two things. We know two things about polygamy in the Old Testament. First of all, when we see the life of a polygamous family in the Old Testament, the family life is a mess. Think of all the strife between Jacob's wives and concubines and the children, the sons born of the different wives and concubines. Or think of David. You know, 2 Samuel chapter 3 tells us about the six wives of David and their sons. Now, you could add a seventh wife for David because later on he married Bathsheba. And again, the circumstances around that are terrible to consider. But David did marry Bathsheba. And you could say that he had a total of seven wives, but six wives when he first became king. And this is what we need to understand. David was troubled because of his many wives. Now, I just want to make this point. Some people wonder why the Bible doesn't expressly condemn David's polygamy. But as is often the case, the scriptures simply state the fact 
And then it shows us the bad results of that fact. And there's no doubt that David's many wives had a bad result in his life. Now, I would say this is evident in two ways. First of all, it's seen in the relatively few number of David's sons. In 2 Samuel chapter 3, where it gives this list of the six wives of David when he first became king, there are only listed six sons from the six mothers listed in 2 Samuel 3. And that's remarkable, don't you think? I mean, look, I, I don't want to get too technical with this, but if you've got six wives, you would think you'd have more than six sons coming from that. But we have this listing of six sons from the six wives. And the trouble was seen in the lives of these sons. Again, I'm just talking about the sons that are mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 3. This is what we read about Amnon. You know what was up with Amnon? Amnon raped his half-sister and was murdered by his half-brother. Chiliab is also known as Daniel in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. The few mentions of this son probably indicate that he died young or that he was an ungodly, unworthy man, hardly worthy of mention in the scriptures. Absalom, he murdered his half-brother and led a civil war against his father, David. He attempted to murder his own father, David. Adoniah, another son listed in 2 Samuel chapter 3, he tried to seize the throne from David and David's appointed successor. And then he tried to take one of David's concubines and was executed for his arrogance. And then the other two sons mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 3 are Shaphatia and Ithream. They either died young or were just unworthy men because they, again, are only mentioned once again in the scriptures in a generic listing of David's sons in 1 Chronicles chapter 3. You see, this is what the Bible tells us. It shows us not so much through specific command in the Old Testament, but by lived out example, this isn't God's best for you to take more than one wife. Now, we see it in David in one sense. We see it in Solomon in a much greater sense, because even though much trouble came to the life of David through his polygamous marriages, it was even worse for David's son Solomon, because we read in 1 Kings that it was the wives of Solomon, his many wives, his foreign wives, that led him away from God. And this is the uh, cause of Solomon's backsliding or apostasy, however you want to categorize it. It was the fact that he had these many foreign wives and they drew his heart away from God. So we have this repeated example in the Old Testament. And again, I just want to say that sometimes the Bible is less preachy than we expect it to be. Sometimes the Bible simply gives us the bad result of something and expects you to consider out hey, you know what? This really wasn't God's best, was it? That's the case with polygamy. But then secondly, we can say this with confidence. Polygamy was never God's best. Now, how can we say never? And we know this because of the pattern that's given in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that says this, that a man should leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and that they shall become one flesh. 
you know, in speaking upon that Genesis chapter 2, verse 24 principle, Jesus clearly told us that this was God's intention at the beginning. Again, you'll find that in Matthew chapter 19, starting at verse 4. God didn't give a specific command against polygamy until the New Testament, but he showed in principle from Genesis chapter 2 and from example throughout the history of the Old Testament that it was never his best. It was never his heart. So does God approve of polygamy? No. We know this today from specific commands. But even in the Old Testament, when there was not a specific command, there was still God's disapproval from two places at least. From the, well, I'll say three. From the command given or the the, uh, example given, the pattern given in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. From the command given to the kings in Deuteronomy. And then finally, from the example of the ruin of these polygamous families that we find repeatedly throughout the Old Testament. So, Monica, I hope this answers your question. Um, God didn't approve of polygamy, even in the Old Testament. He just expressed the disapproval in a different way, not through the specific command. Okay, well, I hope that's helpful for you. Let's move on now to some of the questions that are in our chat window here. I'm going to go up to the top and start taking a look through one by one. Uh, Carol says, was Jonah dead or alive inside the fish? Well, Carol, you're asking a good question here. Um, I know that there are some Bible teachers who very vigorously teach that Jonah was dead inside the, the fish, the great fish, and that God resurrected him out of the fish. And that's why Jesus referred to his resurrection to be a fulfillment of what happened to Jonah. I don't think that's necessary. And personally, I don't see either from Jonah or from the necessity of Jesus making a connection between Jonah three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and Jesus's own entombment for the three days and three nights described in the Gospels. I don't see as either one of those requiring that Jonah was actually dead in the fish. I remember kind of clearly, because I just have it impressed in my memory, that the wonderful and late Dr. J. Vernon McGee used to teach that with real strength. He really believed that Jonah actually died in the fish and was resurrected. I don't see that as being necessary. Is it possible? Of course it's possible. But I don't see it as being required from the text of the scripture to say that. So I would lean on the side of saying no, Jonah survived in the fish. He was not um, dead and raised from the dead there. So let me move on here. Jose says, what are the differences among be filled with the Spirit in Ephesians 5.18, the baptism of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, and the laying hands of people who would receive the Holy Spirit in Acts 8, Acts 19? Well, let me just say, Jose, you're asking a great question here. What are the differences? And I want you to know that there's a sense in which I believe that these all overlap in some way. What we're just talking about is a fullness of the Holy Spirit. I know that some people like to strongly emphasize the idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit 
as being a singular event in a believer's life, I tend to think of the baptism of the Holy Spirit as being more of a condition than an event. Now, I'm not saying that there couldn't be a wonderful and remarkable event in somebody's life where they first have this real filling of the Holy Spirit or experience with the Holy Spirit. But I would want to emphasize that the idea of being immersed in God's Spirit, think about that idea. That's what baptism means. Baptism means to be endured, endured, to be immersed in something, to be dipped under into something. And it's just as the waters of baptism overflow a believer, so in the same way, we could say that the um, uh, that the Holy Spirit overflows somebody, that somebody is, is overwhelmed by, in a sense, immersed into the Holy Spirit. So these are just different ways of exploring and describing a very abundant, a complete, an overflowing experience that the believer has with the Holy Spirit. I generally see a great amount of overlap between the ideas of being filled with the Spirit, of receiving the Spirit, of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So yes, I, I would say that in many ways these just overlap. You, you might be able to make some fine distinctions among them, but in the main, I would say that these are overlapping ideas. Okay, um, Nizgi says, Hi Dave, do the witnesses of God in Revelation chapter 11 come from heaven or earth? Um, I would just have to say that I've always read the description of these witnesses as being people that come from earth, but I would say because the scripture doesn't specifically say, to my knowledge, um, I would say that that would be the most logical way to think of it. Um, it is interesting that they do sort of ascend to heaven when their work is done, but that's even after their lives have been taken. They've been martyred, so to speak, and they resuscitate, for lack of a better word. Um, my general inclination has been to believe that they are of earth, but I wouldn't exclude the possibility that they're from heaven. Because again, to my immediate knowledge, just speaking off the top of my head, I can't really see a particular place where it tells us scripturally one way or another. By the way, if today you meet somebody who claims to be one of those two witnesses, uh, they're not. So you can just rest clear on that. I suppose that in my life, I've personally met maybe five or six different people who have claimed to be these two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11, I can categorically say that every one of them was dead wrong in that. So, um, okay, uh, John, hi to you. Jane says, hi, David, I'll be as concise as possible. Exodus chapter 33, verse 11, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. And then in uh, verse 20, it says, you cannot see my face for one can see me and live. Um, and then Exodus verse 23, you'll see my back. Okay, Jane, you're, you're wondering how God says to, regarding Moses, that he would speak to him face to face. And then later in Exodus, it says, God says, no one can see my face and live. How do we square this circle? How do we reconcile these things? And I would just say that it's just understand that when it says that God would speak to Moses face to face, that's using an 
idiom or a figure of speech. It doesn't literally mean that God would speak to Moses face to face because nobody could do that and live. What that's referring to is free and unhindered speaking back and forth. God and Moses would speak in an unhindered conversation. And it's just using a idiom or a figure of speech that was commonly used in those days. Um, it's like saying that if we say something, well, that really got off track. We're not referring to a train that leaves the tracks. We're referring to something that just didn't you know, go as we intended it or we thought it would go. So these are really the critical differences here, just to simply understand that it's speaking in a figurative way of these things. Um, that, that's the first usage where it says that God spoke to Moses face to face. It's using an idiom, a figure of speech from that day. Again, this is a very natural way of speaking. We use idioms and figures of speech all the time in our speech. And this is just understood, well, th there's a literal idea behind it but the figure of speech in itself is not to be taken literally. Okay, Jimmy says, Hi, Pastor. Thank you for another episode of the Q&A. I have a long question to type, but I realize I was limited to a certain amount of characters. I'm requesting that you give me your email. Uh, let me just say, Jimmy, you can leave a longer question in the comments to the videos. So leave a longer question in the comments to this video and we'll take a look at it and we can reach you that way and uh, take a look at the question that you have to get. So again, just leave it in the comments that are here on this particular video and we're happy to address that question. Jane says, so does God have a human body or is he totally ethereal? Okay, Jane, uh, your question is a little more complicated than it seems. Because when we talk about God, we know, biblically speaking, we're talking about God in his triune nature. And if we want to consider God in his triune nature, God the Father does not have a physical body. When it says in the Bible that God is spirit, he does not have a physical body. Um, we know as well that the Holy Spirit does not have a physical body because that is the nature of his being spirit. However, God the Son, since the incarnation, does have a physical body. Now it's a resurrection body. At the incarnation, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, added humanity to his deity and showed himself and remained that way, the God-man for all of eternity. Now, if you're speaking specifically of God the Father, then we're saying, yes, God the Father does not have a physical body, yet the Bible does refer to God even as a spirit in what we call, let me use the fancy word here, anthropomorphic terms. Anthropomorphic means according to human analogy or human shape. So the Bible says God has a face. It's speaking by analogy. It's putting it in human terms that we can understand. It says that God has a hand. It's speaking of it in human terms that we can understand. It talks about God having a foot, God having an arm. Again, these are all human analogies, things that we call anthropomorphic forms. 
uh, referring to God in human terms to refer to the nature and the actions and the character of God in a way that we could readily understand. So that's the best answer I could give you for that there, Jane. Lou says, the C word concubine is a trigger word for my bride. If I am teaching a passage that contains that word, I need to warn her ahead of time. Well, good. I hope that you do that. Um, it's a good thing that we no longer practice concubinage. It's uh, not good for women to be held in that state where they have many of the responsibilities of marriage, but they don't have the benefits or some of the benefits having to do with inheritance rights and so forth. Um, Jennifer says, how exactly is one born again, baptized in spirit? Different pastors give different answers. One told me I should know like my birthday. So then we read certain verses in the Bible together. Well, Jennifer, let me just say, not everybody can tell you the moment they were converted. Now, many people can. Many people can say, okay, I know that it was this date, even this time, this place, that uh, I first put my faith in Jesus Christ and I trusted in him. And I know that on that day, at that hour, I was born again. Some people have that assurance, have that experience. But there are other people who have an undefined moment of conversion. In other words, uh, they just know at this part of my life, I definitely was converted. And now I know at that part of my life, I definitely was converted. And where exactly it changed along the way, I can't exactly tell you. Um, I would just like to say, Jennifer, if that's you, that's okay. The, the important thing is that you know that you are converted, not that you specifically know the moment when it happened. And how can you know that you're converted? Well, some of the marks of being born again are a genuine love for God, a genuine love for God's truth, a desire to draw nearer to God, a love for God's people, a love for God's word, a desire to grow in God's grace and grow in holiness before God. All these things are indications of new life in Jesus Christ, but someone may not be able to point to a specific time and place. That's why I believe that Jesus's command that his followers should be baptized is very important, at least one of the reasons. Baptism is important for many reasons, but one of them is it does give every individual a definite marking place. They might just say, listen, I don't know exactly when I put my faith in Christ. I, I know again at this date, I wasn't a believer. Now I know that I am. When exactly that changed, I can't tell you, but I do know this. On August the 4th, you know, 1978, whatever it is, I was baptized as a declaration of my faith in Jesus Christ and as a declaration and an evidence of the work that he had done in me to cleanse my sins and to give me new life in Jesus Christ. That is one of several reasons why baptism is so important. It gives a material connection to a spiritual work. We can't see it on the outside when a person's sins are cleansed, but you can see it when they go under the water. 
you can't see it on the outside necessarily when a person is raised to new life in Jesus Christ, but you can see when they come up out of the water. So God gives us certain material things to reinforce to us the truth of what has happened in the spiritual realm. And that's true of baptism, and it's true of the Lord's table, communion, the bread and the cup of communion. Hope that is helpful for you there, Jennifer. Uh, Jimmy says, what goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of the mouth, that is what defiles them. What's your take on a Christian taking wine or alcohol at a controlled level? Thanks. Jimmy, we get this question from time to time, and let me just say this. The Bible does not specifically prohibit the consumption of alcohol for believers. It does specifically prohibit drunkenness. If you drink with the intention of getting drunk or impairing your senses, your, you know, I don't know, your awareness, that's wrong. If you drink even without the intention, but end up intoxicated, that's wrong. So the Bible does speak directly against drunkenness. In other places, the Bible speaks with caution about wine and alcohol. I'll be honest, there are some passages in the Bible that speak in a very celebratory sense of wine. But when it comes to wine and alcohol, the Bible gives caution. And it associates drunkenness with foolishness. For many people, it is a path not of a biblical command, but simply of wise living to say, I'm not going to drink alcohol. Now, I think that there is particular wisdom for those who are Christian ministers and leaders to avoid alcohol. Can I say that there's an absolute ban from this? No, I cannot. But I just can say that there is some level of wisdom for every Christian to uh, not consume alcohol, but especially it's wise for Christian leaders and ministers. So yes, I, I think that there's relevance here, but I cannot look you and look my Bible in the eye and say that the Bible prohibits it, because it doesn't. It, it simply prohibits drunkenness or the intent to become impaired through the consumption of alcohol or other intoxicating substances. I, uh, I, I always like to point out, alcohol is a depressant. That's what it is. Uh, th that's the physiological effect that it has on the body. Um, in Jesus, we want to be stimulated to follow after God, not to be depressed by those things. Okay, so I hope that's helpful for you there, Jimmy. Uh, Renee says, Jennifer to be born again. Okay, she's dealing with Jennifer's question there. Good. Levy says, do angels have flesh and bones and genders like humans, or are they just spiritual beings? Well, Levy, we have to admit that the Bible doesn't tell us as much about angels as we wish. We have a lot more curiosity about these, and that curiosity is not always good. Um, there are people who have been led into great error, uh, sometimes even heresy, because they were just too curious 
And we're always prying into things that the Bible just doesn't speak about. But we can say this, or we can surmise this, that angels are spirits. The Bible calls angels spirits who, for particular times and places and purposes in God's plan, can take on a material appearance. There are many times when angels in the Bible appear in front of others and seem to have a material nature to them, uh, such as the two angels that came to Sodom to rescue Lot and take his family out before the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed. Those angels had some kind of physical presence and appearance. So we would just kind of say that that's not their normal um, standing, but when it's necessary for God's plan and purpose, he allows them to take on some kind of physical presence. But that's not their normal um, status, if we could say that. Um, okay, Jane is asking, ethereal will see my back. Okay, Jane, we're referring back now to the question in Exodus. What did God mean when he told Moses, uh, you cannot see my face, but you'll see my back? Jane, as I explain in my commentary on that section, uh, what that's actually talking about and what, what it means in the more literal Hebrew there is you'll see behind me. You, you could see where that would get translated, you'll see my back. But really what it means, you'll see behind me. And kind of the idea there is just like a comet going through the sky, leaves a trail behind it. So God says, Moses, you're not going to see me, but you'll see the trail behind me. You'll see behind me and, and not actually see me. So God wasn't saying, okay, I'll turn my back to you and you'll see me. You'll just see me instead as I am in there. And, and you'll, you'll see, again, behind me, not my actual back. Uh, again, I, I'm almost positive I explained that there in my commentary in Exodus, what is it, chapter 33. Uh, Dennis says, Good afternoon, Pastor. I recently saw the four-part, the days of Noah, and it brought up the remembrance of the Sabbath, and to keep it holy, is it on Saturday, but we all remember Sunday. Please explain. Okay, Dennis, I, I can answer this. First of all, um, Early Christians, and we have this from the New Testament, met for worship on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. We know this from 1 Corinthians. We know this from the appearance of Jesus to the disciples, both on the day his resurrection was revealed, and then seven days later, eight days later, actually, if you want to count that day, uh, on the following Sunday. And Christians gathered together on the Lord's Day on Sunday. Perhaps they did that to distinguish themselves from the gatherings of the synagogue. Perhaps they did that in recognition of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday or that his resurrection was revealed on a Sunday. We maybe don't know all the reasons why, but we know from the uh, New Testament that the earliest Christians met together on Sunday, on the first day of the week, on the Lord's Day. So the Bible says that 
we should let no person judge us. And this is in the book of Colossians. We should let no person judge us regarding a Sabbath. We're not under the Sabbath law, but you have freedom in Christ. If somebody wants to observe Saturday as their day of worship, they have all freedom in Jesus Christ to do it. Go ahead. That's fine. You have the freedom to do it. But they should not stand in a place of judgment or condemnation of somebody who gathers for worship and gathers together as the community of God on another day of the week. So really, we just have this pattern. I would recommend to you, look up my Bible commentary on Colossians chapter 2, I believe it is, where it speaks about this. You'll find an explanation of this in greater detail. Okay, uh, thank you for that, Dennis. Christiana says, does all answered prayer come from God, or can the devil also answer prayers for nefarious reasons in opposition to God's will? You know, Christiana, it's very interesting. I don't think that when a person truly prays to God, that the devil would fulfill that request. But not all prayers, and I'm putting that in sort of air quotes, not everything that is called prayer is actually prayer unto God. And it's possible that someone, uh, that the devil in a deceptive, in a devious way to work out his schemes could arrange the fulfillment of somebody's desire or request that they have asked amiss that has not been true prayer before God, truly coming before God in the name of Jesus uh, with a surrendered heart before him. Um, so if it's true prayer, truly offered to God, mediated by Jesus Christ, brought to God in the name of Jesus, and with a surrendered will to God, look, I don't think the devil's answering anything with that. But not everything that is called prayer is truly prayer. And it could be that the devil would have a evil purpose in doing some of that, in answering some of those. I, ho I hope that's helpful for you. All right, just a few more questions, and then we'll end it here for the day. Jane says, found your plan of the ages series, and it's fantastic. Many thanks for your hard work. Well, great, Jane. I'm very happy to hear that. I'm glad that you found it and that it was of some help to you. And um, Levy says, why God could not drive out the chariots of iron in Judges chapter 1, verse 19? Well, uh, Levy, I, I wouldn't say that God couldn't drive out the chariots of iron, but that God... Uh, chose not to because of the unfaithfulness of Israel. God, in that situation, linked his action to the faithfulness of Israel. Look, there are times and places where God links his action to the prayers or the faithfulness of God's people. And so if we pray, something will happen. If we don't pray, it won't happen. <clears throat> it's very wrong to take a fatalistic attitude that simply says, hey, God's going to do whatever God's going to do, and that's the end of the story. So, um, no, it would just be that God linked his action to human faithfulness and to human faith, and because of that, uh, the chariots were not driven out. God limited his own action because he chose, God didn't have to, 
but he chose to link it to human action. All right, before we conclude for the day, just a few more uh, things to announce. First of all, I put this out on social media and we'll do it a few more times. But uh, number one, our Israel tour in September is on. Uh, you can look at our Facebook post to discuss the reasons why. But September 15th through the 25th, we're going to Israel. I know people think, well, you're crazy, the COVID thing and so that. No, Israel's going to be open for tours and we're going to go. Now, if you'd like to join us, we've got some spots available because, frankly, some people have uh, understandably dropped out. I understand. I, I make no judgment of anybody who doesn't want to go to Israel at this time. But I think it's going to be an amazing and a unique tour. So this 2020 tour of Israel in September, it's on. And if you'd like to join us, you can. Secondly, I just want to say that we just heard yesterday that a Christian foundation has uh, promised us a grant of matching funds. So I just want to say, get the details on our website, EnduringWord.com, and we'll be putting out some notices about it. But um, it's a great season this summer where we have the great privilege of matching funds gifts. So what a blessing that is. But I just want to say thank you to everybody who prays for our work. Thank you for the good things that God is doing in and through your prayers and your support of Enduring Word. It's great to see what God is doing all over the world with this ministry. Uh, Jane is asking, do you think you will go next year? Okay, no, we're not going to go to Israel again in 2021, but we will in 2022. 2021, we're going to do another uh, Bible lands Mediterranean cruise. So we're going to do the cruise in 2021 and another Israel tour in 2022. That's the plan, God willing, and if we live. So God bless you. Thank you for joining me. I so appreciate our times together, and I'm glad you all could join me today. God bless you. Goodbye. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.